I'd like to first say thank you again for the gracious invitation to be a part of this really historic series of preaching during the season of Lent and being able to renew old acquaintances from our previous visit as well as uh, the privilege of being able to fellowship and meet new faces and uh, just uh, the energy of those who share a love for our Savior and our great salvation. So thank you again for inviting, uh, inviting us to be a part of this uh, series. Uh, this afternoon I want to preach from um, the Gospel according to uh, St. Luke in chapter 19, and we'll look at uh, verses 37 through 44. That's Luke chapter 19, uh, beginning with the 37th verse, and we'll read through the 44th verse. And then, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And, none of the and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as they drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and, and close uh, you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone, uh, leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. This obviously is the uh, narrative of Jesus, what we call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's surrounded by a number of things that are very helpful. Uh, number one, we see there is an intentional symbolism that's associated with his riding into Jerusalem, a thing that seems to be, or a symbol that seems to be at least picked up to some degree by the bulk of the disciples. Uh, the symbolism is there were two ways that one could ride in. If you ride in on a great white stallion, which by the way you'll see later in the book of Revelation, then it is a sign of conquest and it's a sign of, of military power. Uh, but then if one were to ride in on a donkey, it's really a symbol of peace. And so we, we see that Jesus is intentionally riding in, even in the preparatory verses, we see that he tells his disciples, a couple of his disciples, to go out and, and find not just any mode of transportation into Jerusalem, but he consciously chooses to go in on the back of a donkey. And so they sort of pick up on, on the symbolism because the disciples, and by the way, when Luke says here the disciples, he doesn't mean the original 12 disciples. He means the great multitude of those who are favorable to the teaching of Jesus. 
John, who records the same incident, tells us in, in his uh, narrative concerning the, the entry of Jesus that the original twelve did not understand the symbolism of why these other disciples cried out and quoted from Zechariah, Blessed is he who comes, or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't quite grasp it until later. So we know that it was some zealous uh, students of the word of Jesus who had been privy to his teaching and his expounding of the word and, and they had connected his miracles and signs that he had performed with the prophecy of Zechariah that he was the king. And then we see that not only the disciples did not fully understand it, we see the rebuke. The Pharisees who were present, they hear what, what uh, these disciples, these students, these, these, this crowd who had heard Jesus preach and teach, they, they hear what, what they're saying. And, and, and remember, these are the ones that John tells us, they are concerned that Jesus and his preaching and teaching would jeopardize their position with the Roman Empire. And so they said, he said, they, they, they tell Jesus, can you please tell your disciples to keep silent. Jesus does not allow that to happen. He says, no, if they keep silent, then the rocks will cry out. Well, then we get this. So we have the symbolism and we have the response of the disciples. And then we have the rebuke of the, of the Pharisees. And then Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And in such a grand occasion, what would you think? You would think it would be, it would be a time of celebration. But instead, when he gets into Jerusalem, he weeps. Now, we know that ultimately the point that he is pointing to or the issue that he's concerned about is the future overthrow of the city of Jerusalem. And he indicates here that, that at that point, probably AD, about A.D. 70, where, where Jerusalem would be overthrown. And, but but, but the, the term that's used here for weep it's, it's in contrast to silently shedding tears. Really, it's, it's one who wails out, and it's, it's the idea of, of a sense of anger. And so the issue then is, what is it that Jesus weeps over? Why does he weep? One would look at it immediately and say, well, he's, he's upset about the religious leaders. Because he does go in and most of the gospel records tell us that he cleanses out the temple. And it would be interesting because at the beginning of his earthly ministry, depending on how one coordinates all of the, the various narratives, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, we know that he cleansed, he cleansed the temple. And, and so here at the end of his earthly ministry, he goes in and again he cleanses the temple. But I think there are two statements here. That, that indicates the, the anger of Jesus, the target of his anger, as it relates not just to these individuals, but, but certainly embodied by them. But I think he is really addressing two aspects of our fallen condition. Two aspects of our fallen condition that necessitates his going to the cross. And one is, is and, and I think this is embodied by the overzealous disciples, those, not the twelve, but, but those overzealous disciples who were declaring Jesus to be king. Now hold in mind that what they meant by king was a king that would return or restore the splendor and all of the authority of the Davidic throne. They were looking for a geopolitical ruler. 
And so having witnessed Jesus preaching and teaching and all of his various miracles, and now he's riding in. This, by the way, is the, one of the only places in Scripture where we see Jesus actually riding and not walking. He's not walking into Jerusalem. He's riding into Jerusalem. And so they pick up on the symbolism. And so, so inspired are they at this pinnacle of his career where he finally has the ear of the people. Notice what they claim when they cry out. They, they not only quote the, the scriptures concerning Jesus, but what do, what do they announce? Peace. They think that Jesus, by coming to overthrow perhaps the Roman Empire and restoring the kingship of David, they would have peace. Then on the other hand, he goes into Jerusalem, and so I think that's, that's part of our fallen condition. But, but the other part of our fallen condition, that, that this, these false conceptions of peace, the other part of it is he goes into the temple and the religious leaders there, they, they don't understand. Something, see, the, 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 the multitudes don't understand the nature of his kingship. And nor do they understand the nature of peace, of the peace that he is going to accomplish. But here's what the religious leaders don't understand. They don't understand when God's presence is manifest. They don't understand the day of their visitation. They don't know. They would think that, they are imagining that there's no way possible that God's favor and grace could be upon us. In fact, the phrase, the day of your visitation, indicates one of two things. God's presence in judgment and God's manifest presence, I should say, in consummate judgment or God's manifest presence in consummate peace and blessings. And so we have these two things that are, man or that are, are revealed in these two groups of people. On the one hand, I think it, 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 it's, it's significant of, or it symbolizes part of our fallen condition that because of the fall, we don't understand what brings us peace. And because of our fallen condition, we don't know how to discern when God is near, either in judgment or in blessing. And so Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He cries at this condition. And as I think about it, and, and, and we think, and, and, and even today, doesn't that characterize so many, even those who claim the name of Jesus, that we don't really understand what makes for peace? Jackson Brown, great songwriter, uh, he speaks in one of his songs, he has a line that says, it's so hard to come by, this feeling of peace. And then he says, and a friend of mine said, come along, here, I'll share a few of these. And apparently it was some pills. And so he says, I, 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 I looked, I, I, I took these and I looked high and I, was, I, I looked down and it seems like I was flying so high above my sorrow. When I looked down, I was standing on my knees. There are so many people that are like that. They think that here's what will bring us peace. What will bring me peace is a bigger income, more obedient children, a better, if, if we, when, and, and don't we hear Christians on all sides of the political spectrum thinking that peace will come by who we elect in our state offices or in our federal government? We think that peace is only an election away. 
We think that peace is a matter. If peace will come as soon as they get out and as soon as we get in. Peace will come if I can move to this part of the world or if I can move to this. Then we will have peace. Many people think that their peace will be accomplished by, I mean, so many external things. If circumstances change, if this changes, if I get this, if I can get a hold of that, then I will know peace. But just like the character in Jackson Brown's song, when we get those things that we think will give us peace, we'll look down and what we'll find is rather than standing tall, we're actually stooped very low. But not only do we not know because of our fallen condition, you see, I think part of our problem that the, the, the fallen condition that Jesus perhaps is lamenting here is that the reason we don't know what makes for peace is because we don't know what upsets us. We don't know what our basic problem is. If we think that, if we understand what our basic problem is, then we would at least, even if we don't know how to achieve it, we would know where to look to get peace. But man's basic problem is that he is alienated from his creator. Man's basic problem is that he is repulsive in the sight of the one who made him. Man's basic problem is that he has not acquired or has not lived up to the standard for which he has been created and he doesn't have the capacity to fix his problem. And so therefore the reason, and since we are alienated from God, then we will experience a, a discord and chaos in all of our horizontal relationships. And not only that, even if we, if we isolate ourselves and we live in a cage and don't live around other people, you know what we'll find? We'll find that we're not even at peace with ourselves. Because man's condition is one in which he is alienated from God. And being alienated from God... The only thing that can remove that alienation is the peace that is accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because these people think that him going to the state house is going to give them peace. And so he weeps and says, oh, you especially you. Why you especially you? Because you've got the scriptures. And so you think that me going in and overthrowing Pilate, overthrowing Caesar, is going to give you peace. No, what will give, what, what will bring about your peace is me offering up myself on Calvary's cross. Here's the other thing. The other group here are those who think that, well, no, the, the problem is we, we, we don't want to upset Rome. And Jesus looks at them and says, but you don't even know the day of your visitation. In other words, you don't know how God will manifest his consummate presence either in judgment or in blessing. You see, you think that the things that take place in this building, in this structure, which was the temple, he says that's where you think your peace is, that's where you think that God is going to be blessed you because your house is nice. He says, and you don't even have any clue that in a few years, a few days, this whole thing is coming down. He says, oh, if only you knew the day of your visitation. Brothers and sisters, here's what we understand in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, God's consummate judgment has come down on his son. And that is the day of visitation. That's one of the reasons those who are in Christ Jesus, we do not fear the end because for us judgment day has already come. 
God has poured out the fullness of his fury and his wrath that should have been aimed at us. And he's poured it out on his son. And here's the other thing. The greatest manifestation of God's grace towards us is not seen in anything or anywhere outside of the fact of what he is doing in the sacrifice of his son. The day of visitation for the people of God is the day in which God has received the final and consummate sacrifice for sins. And that is when he sacrifices his son to pardon those who are in union with him. You see, here's what we see when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. We have the the conservatives, the, the Bible thumpers, who think they have a Bible verse to claim the state house or the White House or whatever. And they think that Jesus is on his way to get rid of that scoundrel Herod or, or, or Caesar. They think that he's going straight to the top of the government. And Jesus says, oh, if you only knew that even if you elected the person you think ought to be in there, that's not what is going to give you peace. And then the others, those, those who are the, the, the keepers of the temple, they think, okay, we, we, want, we want the favor of God, so we don't want any rabble-rousers. Jesus says, you don't understand. Here is what brings peace, and here is the day of your visitation. When God looks at his son and says, and, and turns his face of favor away from his son, So that the son cries out in his dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here's the interesting thing that we have in the crucifixion of Jesus. We see the rejection of the father in a sense. In other words, he is is pouring out his wrath on his son so that a wretched sinner can be received that very moment into paradise. When Jesus turns to the thief who is rightfully convicted. And says, today, you'll enter with me into paradise. Brothers and sisters, here's my point. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, accomplishing a peace that passes all understanding and securing for his people the visitation of God, both in judgment in that he bears our judgment for us and also in blessings. Because every blessing from God, every promise of God, is yea and amen in the body of Jesus Christ. Yes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And blessed is the peace that we get from him. And understand that God's favor is upon us because his wrath has been poured out upon him. Jesus weeps. Because people can't see. My prayer is that you would see what makes for real peace. And you would know what constitutes the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that... Because of our fallen condition, we are prone to look in the wrong places for peace. 
We thank you for the reminder that we are so easily seduced into things that promise peace but cannot deliver it. And so we do pray that you would give us the eyes of faith, that we would know that regardless of the turmoil that we may experience within, and regardless of the circumstances that we may be in, that if we have been reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, then we have lasting and enduring peace. And we pray that we would seek it nowhere else. We pray also that we would understand that the fullness of your presence, both in judgment and in grace, has been manifest in Jesus. And if we see that and recognize it now, then we pray that we would not stand in dread at his return. We thank you for our conquering king. We thank you for our Prince of Peace and pray that we would embrace it and walk as those who have been forgiven, as those who have been pardoned, as those upon whom you have pronounced everlasting peace. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.